And then, good morning. Good morning. All right, that's better. Um, this morning's sermon text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. It says this, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covers dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have, she should have her hair cut off. And it is, if it is a, a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to woman as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. So in our text this morning, Paul is sort of a transition moment in, in, in the letter. He's transitioning from talking about how members of the church are to live as a unified body in a fractured world outside of the context of worship. So that's what he's been, been, been doing up until this point to, to now how they are to live as a unified body in a fractured world within the context of worship. And so for the next few chapters, uh, he addresses such topics as head coverings, like this morning, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues, and how a worship service is to be ordered. So he shifts from, from the life of the church in the world to the life of the church in the church. Because as I've said before, if and when unbelievers come to a worship gathering like this, uh, they're not expecting a service catered to them. They're expecting it to be different than something they've experienced during the week. Actually, they're hoping it will be something different than what they've experienced during the week. Tim Keller said this in an interview. He said, if the, if the church is the church, it helps the world. It has to. But the danger would be saying that the purpose of the church is to serve the world. Actually, it's not. It's to serve the Lord, but it will serve the world if it's serving the Lord. So if we, if we get that backwards, if we make this, the second priority the first priority, like we talked about last week, we end up not doing either one of those things. So if our, if our primary goal is just to serve the world and to cater ourselves to the world, we actually end up not serving the world. And, and it's obvious that we're not serving the Lord either. 
And so we are to serve the Lord first. That is our first priority as a congregation is to serve the Lord. And by doing so, we will serve the world at the same time. And a Christian worship service that we are experiencing right now in real time, even with all of its music and prayers and Bible readings and preaching and, and sort of these rituals that we do from week, week in to week out, still has a way of speaking into an individual's life like nothing else in all the world can. Because what we're doing here is set apart. It's unusual even that we would sit here on a Sunday morning when there's so many other things going on in the world. As we speak right now, as we sit here, it's unusual what we do here every single week. And this is why it's such a tragedy to see churches begin to compromise who they are and what they've always believed for the sake of inclusion. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked as the church rather than seeing itself as a place that is to offer a counter-cultural reality, an alternate world that shows what human life looks like under the lordship of Christ, giving, giving the world a, a glimpse and a hint at what the garden looks like from Genesis. And for the most part, we see it in the practices of the church that tend to speak in areas of culture that we least expect them to. And so in our text this morning, it's no exception because Paul wants his readers to understand the need to maintain gender distinctives within the church. Now, gender is definitely a, a hot topic in our culture today. Uh, even in the use of the word gender, I recognize that I'm walking on thin ice because gender, the, the word gender, has been twisted to mean whatever we want it to mean. The uh, Christian psychologist Mark Yarhouse defines gender as the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female which is a great definition uh, if it's tethered to biological sex, what it, what it means to be male and female. And this definition stands strong only if you can do that. But because gender is no longer considered a static truth in our culture anymore, it can now be defined in any way you want it to. Essentially, throwing out the distinctives of what it means to be male or female. For example, William Thomas was on the men's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania uh, when he, where he swam for three years uh, and ranked 462 in men's swimming nationally, which isn't terrible. It's better than me. And during his last year of eligibility at, at university, William Thomas uh, actually became Leah Thomas. Quoting from Sports Illustrated here, in her first year swimming for the Penn women's team, after three seasons competing against men, Thomas throttled her competition, setting pool, school, and Ivy League records en route to becoming the nation's most powerful female collegiate swimmer. So Thomas went from number 462 ranking as a man to a number one ranking as a woman. And Thomas 
to critics say, say because there's been a lot of criticism, obviously, uh, of him, uh, and it's sort of a statement on our current culture says, I'm a woman just like anybody else on the team. In her book, The, the Genesis of Gender, which is a wonderful little book by uh, Abigail Favalli, she, she makes this apt observation that, that the obvious reality of being a woman has been eroded to the point that that woman, in quotations here, has turned into identity that can now be freely appropriated by men regardless of material reality. So, how does our life together as a Christian congregation, as a church, as a worshiping community counter this sort of confusion in our culture? This sort of blatant disregard for what is right and what is true. Do we just receive it and go with it? Because that's the easier, less controversial thing to do. That's what everybody else is doing. And so if we do that, we'll be comfortable and we won't stir the pot. But the answer to that question is absolutely not. What we do is we continue to do what the church has always done for centuries, which is remaining steadfast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So so understand that as a worshiping community in the first century, uh, where Corinth was uh, found, found themselves, that the church was actually a progressive cultural institution. It was actually pushing the envelope of of what the culture was actually teaching, specifically about men and women. But by just allowing women into worship gatherings in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, uh, as full participants was unheard of in that culture. It was unusual. It was was, uh, borderline scandalous to a lot of people. And even with this, the church is giving the world a glimpse of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. That that life in the kingdom of God is a place where full equality and interdependence of the sexes is recognized because both are made in the image of God. That That is the grounding reality. But the Corinthians were struggling with this. And their desire to assert their Christian freedom, because that's what's at play here, even in this text about head coverings, they end up crossing boundaries of God-given gender distinctives. They end up sending these mixed signals to, to those inside the church. There was a lot of confusion as to what was going on here, but also sending mixed signals to those outside the church. And essentially what was ending up happening within the church in Corinth was this distraction from worship, this distraction of of holding up Christ as the one to be adored. And instead, all eyes were falling on the women of the congregation. So Paul seeks to set things back in order for them as, as the church, and he does this by pointing to three things, okay? The first thing that he points to, which would be the shortest point, is that he points to the tradition of the gospel. The second thing he points to is the Trinity and the order of the Trinity and why that's important. And then the third thing he points to is the order of creation 
and why that's important to the church as well. So the first thing that Paul is pointing to here is tradition. The traditions Paul speaks of in verse 2 are are those theological distinctives that have been maintained by the the apostles since the resurrection. So so these are unchanging, close-handed doctrines that Paul is commending the the Corinthians for actually maintaining. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says these words to the Corinthians. He says, that is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and and my faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, so these traditions of his ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So here are gospel distinctives that are the framework for the church and, and what the Corinthian Christians are actually holding on to, even if they're holding on to them a little loosely. Paul is also saying that this is, this is what I and others have always taught to all the churches that we have gone to, that we have planted, that we have established, and nothing has changed. It does not matter what culture the church finds itself in, nothing has changed these historic doctrines. So this should be a comfort in a world that is rapidly changing. It should be a comfort to you in a world that is rapidly changing. From from one day to the next, we don't know what we'll say or what we'll do that could potentially get you canceled or fired from your job or at least ridiculed at some level. So this is is why some of you uh, have constant diversity training uh, at your your place of vocation because of the ever-changing landscape uh, of language and identity. And so your your employer uh, thinks that you need to be updated on these things and have all of these, these different information downloaded into your brain so that you don't make the company look bad. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ remains exactly the same. It never changes. It never wavers. There there is never any doubt that, that what has always been true will ever change or falter to kind of keep up with the culture. And this is how Paul begins the conversation about gender distinctive within the church, by pointing his readers back to what they have believed, that which is steadfast and unchanging. And that's what he calls us to as well as the Christian church, to continue to be reminded of that which we believe as Christians, as the church, that which is steadfast and unchanging. And so in verses 3 through 6, Paul now moves into a more kind of theological explanation by grounding the gender discussion within the Trinity. So look at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So the word head here in these six verses is used 10 times. So it's important for us, if you see a a word repeated when you're doing your your Bible study, it's important for you to kind of take a pause and say, all right, what does that word mean? What, what is, what is, why is Paul using that word over and over to? What is he referring to? Because this has everything to do with, with how we understand what distinctions we have as men and women. So in another letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul lays it out uh, as such. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. So within our text in 1 Corinthians, the use of the word head is used in the exact same way that Paul is using it here in Ephesians chapter 5. And so when he uses the word head, he is actually referring to hierarchy or authority, both within the Trinity and between men and women. And specifically, he's speaking to husbands and wives here. Now, I just want to be clear and say this in no way is meant to diminish or threaten a woman's stance as an equal human being created in God's image. Nor are head coverings the main concern here. And we know that's true because in verse 3, Paul says these words. He says, but I want you to understand. And he doesn't say, but I want you to understand that every woman should wear head coverings in the worship gathering and period. And that's what you should be doing. And end of discussion and we just kind of move on from there. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, but I want you to understand this uh, this kind of... uh, authority that has been set in place and is modeled by this this trinitarian framework that the head of every man is Christ that the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God so so what we see here is 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 we don't see Paul here being a sexist we don't see him here just trying to put women in their place and telling them to kind of shut up, be quiet, and be put in the corner, as Paul has kind of been painted as doing here and in other places in the scriptures. That's not what Paul is doing at all. Like I said earlier, the, the, the church was this, this, this progressive cultural institution. To allow women into the church was the opposite of being sexist, and Paul was all for it. Now, what Paul is doing here is seeking to be faithful to the divine order that God has established. So Paul is pointing out that that within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in being in essence, as our our, uh, confessions tell us, but they willingly choose to fulfill different functions and different roles for the purpose of communicating communal love between them. So so for Jesus, for example, to submit himself to the will of the Father is not a sign of weakness, but of strength and humility. 
It's not a sign of, of, of the father sort of uh, impressing upon Jesus and forcing him to, to sort of submit to his will and saying, you're going to do this. No, it's Jesus submitting himself to the father's will and, and, and lovingly obeying him and what he's being called to. In the same way, a woman who submits herself to her husband, and in this instance, Paul is referring to wearing a head covering, is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength and humility. Because she's demonstrating what it looks like for the bride of Christ, the church, as Ephesians 5 talks about, for the bride of Christ to submit itself to Christ, to her husband. And this is lived out within the husband and wife relationship, displaying the beauty of what Christ has, do- Christ has done in his submission to the Father's will. Now, the problem that Paul is addressing here is the Corinthians' disregard for this. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So the issue here, I think a lot of times this, this passage gets misinterpreted because we, we believe the issue here is women, that women are causing a problem because they're not wearing their uh, hair in the way they're supposed to. They're not uh, putting on a ha- head covering and covering, covering themselves in the way they're supposed to. And so we think, oh, well, the, the woman is the problem, just like from the beginning. The woman has always been the problem. But just for your information, Paul is talking to men and women here. The issue involves both. The men are just as guilty here as the women because Paul is saying, look, both men and women are are praying and prophesying in the church, uh, but Paul is saying that both are to do it in a particular way because they're not, and the particular ways that they are supposed to pray and prophesy are gender-specific. So the man was not to cover his head, and the woman was not to have her head uncovered during these moments of praying and prophesying. Now, let me just pause here and say, because it's really quiet in here, and you guys are, I think you guys are waiting for me to say this, Um, and so just to bring you some relief, I don't believe this text teaches that women should wear head coverings today, okay? I, I just felt a sigh of relief. But I believe that this is a a, a very much a cultural practice within the Roman world that communicated certain things about men and women during this time period. So Paul's comparison of a woman who prays or prophesies without a head covering to a woman with a man's haircut, so uh, a shorter haircut or having her head shaved, also signifies that the main issue at stake here is gender distinctions, not merely a piece of cloth on a woman's head. So in verse 6, Paul explains it this way. 
He says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. So Paul is saying, look, if she's not going to cover her head, if she is not going to follow, follow along in these kind of cultural distinctions that set men and women apart, why doesn't she just go all the way and just completely cut all of her hair off? If she wants to, to be like a man and look like a man, why doesn't she just go all the way? But, but Paul goes on to say, but since it is, it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul is saying, just as it's wrong for a woman to sort of blur the gender distinctions by wearing a man's hairstyle, so too it's wrong for a woman to blur such distinctions by not covering her head while praying or prophesying. And so the beauty of this passage is not that we you know, adorn ourselves with these, with these outward head coverings or whatever it might be. And, and just to also to clear it up too, there's nothing, if you want to wear a head covering and that's something that you want to do and you feel like God's called you to that, that's totally fine with me. I don't believe you're going against what the scriptures teach in, in any way or fashion. Um, but I want you to see that the beauty of this passage is not the head covering. The beauty of this part of the passage here is that it roots gender and, and, and gender roles. It roots who we are as men and women within the Trinitarian relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is something you cannot miss. And that when men and women live in this proper order that, that, that reflects the Trinitarian bond, this divine order of man and Christ and wife and husband and Christ and God and, and how Paul is laying it out here in these verses. Because for, men, for a man to pray and prophesy with his head uncovered is to bring shame to Christ, is to bring shame to his head, which is most important. And for a woman to pray and prophesy with her, with, uh, with her head uncovered is to bring shame to her husband. It's, it's to disrupt the, the, the unity and the distinction and the order that has been put in place by God. And this divine order, whether you believe this or not, is what we are called to. Every single person on the planet. It's an order that the world doesn't have. It's an, it's an order that the world doesn't even acknowledge. It's an order that is to the world, to our culture, is scandalous. So Paul is now going to expand on the reasons why a wife should cover her head and a man should not in these next few verses, in verses 7 through 9, because not only does tradition... And the Trinity point to order in these gender distinctives. Paul also appeals to creation. Look at verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, in these verses, Paul is simply explaining the creation order, which Paul often does, and a lot of biblical writers do, is they, they point back to Genesis. 
And so specifically, Paul is pointing to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, that Matthew read for us earlier in the service. So in Genesis chapter 1, it's important because it establishes that men and women, men and women are equally created in the image of God. So this sets up a level playing field between between humanity, between a man and between a woman. This doesn't set them uh, uh, over and above one another, but equal before God because they are are created in his image. So again, uh, Abigail Favalli says this in her book, The Genesis of Gender. She says, in this order found in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, sexual difference is understood and experienced as gift as a source of fruitfulness and love. There is a dynamic balance between sameness and difference, and the man and the woman have a shared commission, a common mission to generate life and govern the earth. And then in Genesis 2, it establishes this creational order that Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is why I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, is speaking to these gender distinctives here and not primarily head coverings and whether you should wear one or not. Because to only try and pull from this passage that women wear head coverings is to come up short to what Paul is trying to get across to his readers here. Never once in the text does Paul explicitly say that a woman has to wear a head covering to pray or prophesy. He doesn't say that. Nor is he trying to make this head covering argument from creation either. Instead, Paul's appeal to creation is to demonstrate the differences between men and women that God established from the beginning and that a violation of these distinctions and this order brings shame instead of glory. That a disruption of this order, a disruption of these distinctions is actually ultimately bringing shame to the relationship that we have with God. Because to get it out of order, to get these distinctions out of order, to get our roles out of order is to cause confusion and illogical conclusions, as we see every single day in our world, don't we? The uh, New Testament scholar Benjamin Merkel is uh, really helpful here because I would say this is probably one of the hardest texts that I've ever had to study and preach on. Um, and so I leaned heavily into a few people, but Benjamin Merkel was one of those, uh, those guys. But in his commentary on this passage, uh, he gives some helpful reasons uh, why gender distinctives is what Paul is driving at here in chapter 11. One of the first things he says is, is Paul's argument from the nature of head coverings in verse 10. So look there with me. I know this is probably an odd verse, and you say, what does this mean? But Paul says this, he says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And then Paul gives almost zero explanation for that. And so you're like, what does he mean by because of the angels? So Merkel says this, he says, it's important to notice the passive nature of a head covering. 
A head covering was a sign or symbol pointing to a greater reality. It had no meaning in itself, but was a concrete expression of an intangible truth. Thus, Paul isn't concerned with head coverings per se. Rather, he's concerned with the meaning that wearing a head covering conveys. And so this phrase, because of the angel, angels, underlines this idea. Because it shows that every order of created beings, so that includes animals, that includes uh, human beings, but that also includes these created spiritual beings that we call angels. All Every order of created beings shows reference to God in their own way and performing its God-given roles, and angels play their part in this. So Paul is saying, if angels are not to step over their God-given boundaries, their God-given roles, their God-given order, who are we to do so? If these spiritual beings don't get out of line, if these spiritual beings don't get out of their order, why do we think that we can do so? So Paul goes on to say in verses 11 through 12, he says, Nevertheless, in the, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, I hope you, I hope you can catch the beauty of what was just said there. Because uh, what Paul is saying is that, that the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so we read that in Genesis chapter 2, that, that, that God took a rib and he formed woman out of that rib, out of Adam's rib, so she was created out of man. And so we might think, well, that's, that's why we're we are ahead, that the, you know, the woman's head, and we'd be right in saying that. But, but sometimes we take that truth and, that we, and we abuse it. And we abuse it towards women. And we abuse it towards, uh, towards our wives in that way. And so Paul quickly follows up with this to say, so man is now born of woman. Which is to say, there are no men here without women. None. You are born of a woman, plain and simple. And so Paul is saying there is this interdependence in our world, in our culture, between men and women. So essentially what Paul is saying, that, that man cannot be truly man without woman, and woman cannot be truly woman without man. Which is to say we need each other. We need women and we need men. So God designed us with distinction and roles and order for this purpose. So the second thing that Paul argues from is his argument from nature in verses 13 through 15. Look there with me. He says, judge for yourselves. And he asks this question, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So let me just say this too. It, it, 
culturally speaking here, it was not natural for men to grow their hair out in this particular culture. That was, that was unusual to, to wear it down or to wear it in a man bun or to wear it in a ponytail or to whatever, whatever you like to do nowadays if you're blessed with, you know, you know long, you know, luscious hair, uh, unlike myself, and you like to do that. It is totally fine, okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. He is not saying you're not allowed to have long hair, men, and, and he's not saying also that women aren't allowed to have short hair uh, uh, either, okay? But, but Paul is making a point here from nature, uh, and, he's ref- and, and, wa- and, doing, and in doing so, using this term nature, Paul is referring to God's design in creation. So much like he talks about in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, when Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So Paul is saying that according to nature, according to how we were naturally made by God, these gender distinctions are clear. So, so the Bible is very logical, okay? The Bible is not an illogical book, and Paul lays it out in a very logical way, which is why he is pointing to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 here. He wants us to see the logic and the truth, ultimately, of how God has made us. So naturally, God created women to have longer hair than men, and thus nature teaches us it's not fitting for a man to have long hair and appear like a woman, and this is Paul's argument. So Paul's argument from nature then doesn't directly prove women must wear head coverings, but that the differences between men and women are part of God's creational design. And because of this distinction, Paul is saying it's crucial that the Corinthian women wear head coverings to point to this particular distinction. So Paul's third argument here, is his argument from practice in verse 16. So Paul says this in verse 16. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, which is natural that somebody is going to argue about this, and I'm sure someone is going to argue with me about this after the service is over. So if if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So according to Paul, In this verse, he is saying that the practice of head coverings was not limited to the church in Corinth. Paul wasn't just saying, hey, this is a Corinthian thing, and this is what we're doing. We're kind of starting our own denomination, so we're going to be the Corinthian denomination, and all of our women wear head coverings. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is actually saying that this was a universal practice amongst all the churches across the known world at that particular time. And this is, this is true, culturally speaking, across the Mediterranean world, that men, I mean, sorry, that women, not men, wore head coverings. It was, it was somewhat fashionable. It, it, it also communicated uh, a level of, of, of femininity during this particular time in the world. 
And the reason normally given for that was, was to practice modesty. So a lot was communicated with a head covering. But specifically what Paul is getting at here is, is culturally speaking and, and, and in practical ways, this is uh, pointing to gender distinctions between men and women. And it was a clear sign of this. So Paul's argument then is women must wear head coverings when praying or prophesying because of the more important underlying issue, which is God created men and women differently. That there are only two sexes, male and female. And those are very, very different. And therefore, we must not seek to eliminate such distinctions either. So now something so difficult as a topic like this that that may seem to the outside eye antiquated. Uh, Maybe it's even backwards, and for that I say so be it. Maybe we're saying, well, we're going against the grain of culture, so we're making it harder for ourselves by doing so. Maybe this is going to limit who comes to our church. Uh, Maybe this is going to make people upset. Why not just hop on board the bandwagon and avoid controversy? Because, hey, if the church has already already been this sort of progressive cultural institution that allowed women into their midst and allowed them to be part of the service in certain ways, why not just let transgender people do the same thing? Why not just let people be free with who they believe they uh, believe themselves to be? But to do so would be unfaithful to the gospel. It's what Paul has been saying to the Corinthian church from the very beginning of his letter. To, to, to live outside of the way in which God has created, created you is not to point to the love of Christ that was displayed at the cross. It's actually more hate than love. Remember, the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross drives us drives us to live lives that reflect God's good creational distinctions in a way that compels the culture toward this alternate reality and what we would say is true reality under the lordship of Christ. And the relationship that we have between Christian men and Christian women then becomes the mystery that displays the gospel to a watching world. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know in the sort of the, the cultural tension that we find ourselves in, uh, in our country and in our world, that a message like this is very much controversial. It's, it's very much pushing against the grain of, of our culture in a very specific way. And I know even, even in our midst that there are people uh, here at our church who have family members, who have close friends, who have colleagues, who have classmates, who are really struggling with what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And so, God, I pray, even as we engage uh, in something so controversial, 
even as we we take a, a gospel stand on what we believe the scriptures clearly teach about gender distinctions, that at the very same time that we would show love and care uh, and honor to those people who are really wrestling um, with how you have created them, God. I pray that we would be able to come alongside people who are really struggling with these particular distinctions um, that you have set up, and I pray that you would open their eyes to the beauty of, of your Trinitarian creational design, and that they would be free because of what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.